Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College from the studios of KSBC. I'm Patty Bell. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we'll be talking to current and former Pomona faculty about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Malte Dold, Assistant Professor of Economics here at Pomona College. Welcome, Malte. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. Where, where are you from originally? Sure. So I am a German citizen. I grew up in southwestern Germany, small little town at the Swiss border, Swiss-French border. And I actually consider Basel, Switzerland, my hometown because there was not a big town around. So I uh, often would go to Basel. And Basel is a cute little town, actually quite famous for... Roger Federer. Roger Federer. Um, <laughs> it's art scene and two of the biggest, biggest pharmaceutical companies, so Roche and Novartis, yeah. So that's the area that um, where I grew up in, southwestern Germany, and the Black Forest region is there. And uh, the closest German city is Freiburg, actually. Uh, we mm-hmm. have actually here, I think Pomona has a program, exchange program, mm. with yeah, Freiburg. Freiburg University, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your educational journey. Sure. So I, well, you know, went to public high school in, in Germany. And, you know, German the German system is slightly different, you know, slightly longer. It's similar to the French lycée. So you actually leave high school when you're 19, which is sort of like your first two years in college almost, right, That uh, when you leave high school. Uh, I went on to study in university then directly, so we don't have a college system. You direct, directly go on to university, and I studied philosophy and economics. And uh, the reason for that was that I wanted to understand what was going on around me, right? And I said, economics, that, that seems interesting. That seems powerful, right? There's a lot of economic talk all around me. But I also wanted to do something for my heart, you know, so mm-hmm. I combined it with uh, philosophy. And well, I finished that. I did a, a bachelor and a master's, both in philosophy and economics. And then I decided, you know, I want to stay within academia and, and do some serious research. And I did a PhD in economics. Uh, and while doing that, I said, I actually love teaching. Hmm. And I started a master's of education in PPE, philosophy, politics, and uh, economics. And that led me then to that master. But I also finished my PhD in economics, mm-hmm. and went on to do my postdoc. And after my postdoc, I ended up here. You mentioned uh, public education. I, I understand that you're a supporter, of, a big supporter of public education. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So it, it, it's a topic that is very close to my heart. And I would say I'm a beneficiary of the public education system in, in Germany. Both of my parents didn't have much money. My, my mom never had a stable job. Uh, my dad was a teacher, but not like a teacher in its uh, traditional sense. He taught students with learning disabilities. And so it was never a household where there was a lot of money. It was a lot of idealism, I would say. Um, and I would say, you know, when I went on to st- then study in, in school, it was never a question of economic means. You know, we could just go to school and the level was decent, you know. Mm-hmm. And was never that, you know, also my classmates, nobody knew what the other person would have as a family background. They would just come together and, you know, have a good time, basically. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's a, a very healthy way of mixing people from different socioeconomic strata and, you know, bringing them together. After all, it's about education, right? And it's not about, you know, your career path or whatever. And also then I went on um, to study at a public university, 
Um, the German system is, is quite different from the American that we have a lot of decent universities, public universities, but we don't have these high peaks in quality, right? We don't have the Ivy Leagues, but we have a lot of decent universities. And I would say mm -hmm. that's a trade-off, right? When you have a public system, I would say you have a very good floor. Nobody falls under that floor, but you might be missing these peaks, right? These uh, clusters of excellence. But I think that's a trade-off every society has to find for, for itself. And uh, mm -hmm. I would say I, I benefited a lot from the, from the German system. So you mentioned your parents being teachers. Um, did, and you said you discovered your love for teaching when you were in graduate school. Did that ever come up before? Or did you think that shaped your your love for teaching and then for economics, maybe? You know, if you if you believe in, um, you know, uh, psychoanalytical theory <laughs> and, and whatnot, you try to rebel against whatever your parents do, right? <laughs> so I, for a long time, didn't want to become a teacher and having to do anything with education because I thought that's what my parents already do, right? So it's, it's kind of like an occupied area and I want to, like, develop in the person that I want to be, right? And my brother... Um, he went on to med school, so that was a choice I couldn't do, right? I didn't want to become my brother. Uh, he's a wonderful person. He did his, his things, and he's a wonderful doctor. But I said, you know, let's try economics. Mm -hmm. And the longer I studied, the more I fell in love with just that teacher-student relationship that is, I think, one of the most precious relationships that we have. It's a very noble cause where there's a lot of freedom and I think a lot of passion and idealism. So I thought... You know, um, my dad passed away in 2007, so um, I, I said to my dad, you know, if I can continue a legacy, you know, I, that would be a wonderful, wonderful way of doing it. And when I came out here to Pomona for my interview, actually, it was a very nice and wonderful way. You know, it was a sunny day, obviously, Southern California, <laughs> and I felt my dad, you know, I could connect with him. I was out here, and I said, you know, I think I, I want to be here. Um, so your main focus is in behavioral uh, economics. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about that? Uh, how does that differ from classical um, economics? Sure. So, when I studied economics and philosophy um, back in college, I was quite frustrated with economics, like many other students, and I, I bet many of our students here too, because economics, when you study it at a college level, often has a very abstract, limited way of teaching what is an economic model very um, simplifying assumptions, and you wonder, where the heck is reality <laughs> in these models? <laughs> yeah. And while it is a powerful model, it's a very simplifying model. It tries to talk about rationality in a very simplifying way and has simplifying assumptions about economic choice, and I, I found that all, always very limiting. Now, for me, it was a a gift when I discovered the work uh, by Daniel Kahneman, who's a, a psychologist and Nobel Prize laureate, actually, in economics, mm -hmm. and his work on bounded rationality and heuristics and biases, et cetera. And I said, that is human choice. That's not mm -hmm. rational choice. That's human <laughs> choice. So we're talking about human choice. Yeah. I was happy to see that his work got published in economic journals, et cetera. And I said, well, if somebody like uh, Daniel Kahneman is... Um, considered to be an economist, although he has that psychology background, maybe there's hope to um, talk about bounded rationality, bounded selfishness, and, you know, bounded willpower, all as concepts that are important and that are the core of, of behavioral economics and not mm -hmm. that hyper-rational way of, of doing yeah. and modeling economic choice. Mm -hmm. 
a little bit related. Um, we talked a little bit about PPE, the intersection of philosophy, politics, and economics. Um, what is so interesting about that? And, and can you talk a little bit about the intersection of those three? Yes. So not only do I find the combination of psychology and economics interesting, I, I always found it kind of like a puzzle of why there's so little talk about morality when we talk about economic choice and when we talk about economic policymaking, right? Because at the end of the day, what is economic policymaking? It's not just about efficiency, right? It's not a ch just about how can we enlarge the pie of a society, but how, how can we distribute that pie, right? How can we divide that pie? There's yes. an altruistic side to it too. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Uh, so there is something that is not purely self-interested. And I think a lot of citizens want to see that in their politicians, that they do not just narrowly talk about, you know, how can we have the highest GDP per capita? But actually also, how can we make sure that, you know, many people benefit from that economic pie? Mm -hmm. And that is a discussion that is obviously generically part of, for example, distributive justice in philosophy, right? Where I would say that dialogue is interesting. And if you start digging a little bit, it's actually a dialogue that a lot of economists traditionally um, were interested in. Mm -hmm. People, um, you know, if you go back, 19th century political economy was full of these discussions. Only later in the 20th century, it came apart, right? And it became this very technical, narrow discipline that we have nowadays. So my, you know, humble attempt is to go back to these roots of political economy. People like Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, um, Jeremy Bentham, they were all interested in these very, like, you know, deep social questions that uh, couldn't be separated from the economic questions. Now, obviously, PPE has another P, politics. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, it's not only about the dialogue between economic analysis and moral philosophy, for example, because they can benefit from each, each other, right? But it's also about how can that enriched dialogue between philosophy and economics then contribute to better policymaking, right? So that's really the idea how the second P comes in, the P for politics. So let's dig into that a little bit. Um, one of your most recent papers, um, takes on something that's of interest to a lot of us. Um, it's on a lot of people's minds, the, the uh, uh, decline of, of um, the liberal order um, around the world, but particularly in Europe, in your, mm -hmm. in, in your case, in this, in this paper. Um, and you propose as an answer a new order liberalism. Can you walk us through what you mean by that? Sure. So that's a paper that um, I recently wrote together with uh, a colleague of mine from the University of Freiburg. And we in this little paper address the question, how on earth could it happen that there's this massive backlash all over in Europe, right? If you think about Brexit, if you think about Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary in particular, where uh, you know, the far right has uh, a massive momentum. How can you understand that if you also look at the economic growth that happened over the last you know, 50, 60 years after the Second World War? How can you square that? And when you look um, at the numbers, uh, you see that, well, a lot of people benefited from that uh, boom. And you could say it's an urban elite that mm. is the, you know, the beneficiaries. But you have, especially in rural parts of Germany, not only Germany, but also England uh, and Eastern Europe, all over uh, Europe, basically... A, a part of the population that felt neglected, that are the left behind, and it's not only economically neglected, it's really that you do not feel to be part of the policymaking um, realm. 
And this division between urban and rural, I think, is a huge problem in, in Europe because you have a high mobility between the urban elite. You know, it doesn't matter whether you live in Berlin, Paris, or in London. Um, they're all interconnected. They go to the same schools. They might be public schools, but they're all like among themselves. And you have a large part of the European society that basically do not benefit from that from that upswing. So the old, you know, left-right um, division between, you know, more state or less state is, is is kind of obsolete, and it's really nowadays more about open versus closed. The rural part of the population having more this idea that you need to close the nation state, right? And the urban elite having this idea that you have to open up the society. And that is obviously a tension that you see um, coming up in, in Brexit, but also in, in recent elections that is um, needs a an economic, a comprehensive economic policy response. And the other liberal tradition, because you mentioned it, right, is basically a tradition that um, was founded in Germany in the interwar period. So after the First World War, there were a bunch of lawyers and economists coming together saying, we need to have a response to populism of that time, of the 30s, right? Mm -hmm. Think about you know, the rise of mm -hmm. uh, Nazism in, in Germany, but also of populist movement in Italy, right? Fascism, et cetera. Then you had the Bolshevism in the East. So there was a huge... Um, populist backlash against um, you know the liberal elite at that time, and what we have now is sort of a new crisis. Obviously, I, I wouldn't say it's the same dimension, but it has similar aspects, mm -hmm. and that I think we can learn a lot from the other liberal response, from their mistakes, but also from the good part that they had. Because what they said is we can't we cannot go back to laissez-faire. We cannot just say the market is the solution, but we also cannot just say well the state solve everything, right? Mm -hmm. So what we need is a comprehensive social solution, actually, that basically both at the bottom of the income distribution and at the top of the income distribution has to have a response how we can prevent power dynamics to happen. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what we mean by that is to not have, if you think about the top of the income distribution, what happens in a lot of economies is an oligopolistic market, meaning a few players defining what happens, right? And that leads to a you know, bad combination of political and economic power, right? Because the economic power defines what happens in politics and the other way around, and you basically leave out, out the citizen. So that power dynamic is, is problematic, but also the power dynamic at the bottom of the income distribution is, is problematic because a lot of people simply do not have the means to participate in the, in the market game. And the other liberal response tries to say, okay, we try to push back against the power dynamics in politics, for example, revolving door policy. Mm -hmm. Let's try to prevent that, that people go out of business and go into the political um, you know, game and the other way around. But also at the bottom of the income distribution, you want to have something like a welfare state that is functioning. You know, a huge debate currently in the US, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and from a European perspective, I think you need to have both. You need to address both aspects. And that's something that we try to address in this paper. And we think, you know, this auto liberal response has a lot of merit. It, it's one that has been around for many decades, but uh, we try to make a case for new auto liberalism in mm -hmm. this paper. How do, how do you address these topics in your class? Because I'm imagining there's other, also other examples, not only in Europe and, and other parts of the world too. And, and you just hear also, you hear a lot of that rhetoric, a lot of that phenomena happening. How, what is your response from your students? How, how do you kind of apply the, uh, or 
teach the application of these um, economic models. Wonderful, yeah. So I try to obviously have not my opinion on, imposed on, on the students, but to say, listen, I invite you to a dialogue that is not just about economics. For example, I teach a, a lecture, um, it's a course called uh, Political Economy or Economic Analysis of Politics, and it's clear that we talk also about you know moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. So you try to have that at the outset, but not imposing any you know particular view, but inviting the students to say, let's step out outside the box, the typical economic analysis box, and try to not just think, for example, in consequentialistic terms, which is a typical way economists would think. They just look at the outcome of a choice, but they forget concepts like rights. You know, They forget um, stuff like freedom. That is obviously inherently important. And um, I invite my students to you know, join the right and talk about that. And that's my, my way of teaching it, yeah. Um, understand that you also have a new class that you're planning for PPE and &E, um, called Enrich, Enlighten, and Govern, uh, an introductory class. How is that different from uh, from existing introductory classes, and are you doing something different? So the story behind this class is that um, our PPE program here got audited, and one of the critiques, point of criticism was, listen, you, you cannot just have one integrative seminar at the end where you bring stuff together. You need an introduction. Students, you know, at yeah. the beginning when they enter, they, they shouldn't just be, you know, going either in philosophy, economics or politics, but try to have, an, uh, you know, a class that introduces these themes. And I, when I heard about that, I said, that's a you know, window of opportunity. I'm a yeah. new, mm -hmm. new person here. Let's, let's try and, and see what I can do. And um, Elna Brown, who's a professor in the economics department here, a wonderful colleague, she said, yeah, why don't you, you know, think about that? And we came up with this title, uh, Enrich, Enlighten, and Govern, which, you know, is sort of like a, with a smile and an invitation to think about 19th century pol political economy, you know, this tradition where you think about economics not as a, as a discipline that is only about efficiency, but you say, well, it's really about also how can we combine it with philosophy? That's the enlightened part, right? But the enriching part is also not just how can I make money, but how can we enrich our society, our community, right? Mm -hmm. And the government part is obviously the, uh, the idea that we talk about public policy there. And what I try to do in this class is really to first have a dialogue between economic analysis and moral philosophy. And I always say, you know, if you do economic analysis without moral philosophy, that's sort of screwed because you forget the whole discussion on distribution, for example, right? You only talk about efficiency. But also the other way around, it's interesting. When you talk to philosophy students and you forget the economic part, it's sort of empty, right? Because you can have lofty ideals. Mm -hmm. They sound wonderful, utopian. But, you know, what about our constraints? Mm -hmm. So yeah. you try to talk about constraints, for example. And obviously what economists also have to offer is a behavioral model that often is lacking in, in philosophy. But at the same time, if you just have these two disciplines, you know, you'll lack this whole, you know, basis of institutional background. So you want to talk about institutions, and that's obviously where politics comes in. You want to talk about institutional reforms. You want to talk about the welfare states. You want to talk about, you know, a whole bunch of things. And um, one of the wonderful examples, how I often kick off my class, and that will be part of this class too, there was a nice memorandum by Larry Summers. You know, many, many know Larry Summers. He's... He used to be, I think, the Harvard president, but he was the chief economist of the World Bank, actually. And he, has, he, has that, he had that idea in 1991 where he said, listen, what can we do with the economic logic? And he said, 
well, if we follow the economic logic, shouldn't we just dump all our Western waste in developing countries? Because, you know, if you apply economic logic, you can say basically it's cheaper right, for everybody to dump the waste there. We pay them off and everybody is better off, right? And you cannot, obviously, <laughs> this is a, a provocation. Um, and of I don't, course. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, mm -hmm. But of it's course. the idea here is really to see how limited, you know, economic reasoning can be if you if you take it to its extreme. And if you don't think of the ethical sides. Exactly. All. I love the, as an editor, I have to say, I love your title because Enrich, Enlighten, and Govern, you, you took the three, the P, P, and E and converted them into verbs, which um, gives them all motion and gives them all energy, which I, so it's a, it's a nice title. Wonderful. <laughs> and I don't want to take credit for that. Um, that was in a dialogue with Eleanor Brown. Yeah. She's uh, very creative and I, I thank her for that title. She, uh, she, she has to take the credit for that. Malte, can you walk us through a little bit how you conduct your research? What kind of methods? Um, where do you come up with your ideas? Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Sure. So my research is interdisciplinary. And, and I would also say my methods uh, reflect that. So I love experiments. Um, and part of my research is really inviting students to the lab. We run decision experiments. And that's an experimental method. you know. And you observe um, students' behavior. You collect data. You evaluate the data. You have a theory about, for example, moral preferences. right? And you try to see, are students as selfish as economic theory believes they are? right? Um, so that, that's one way to, uh, to do my research. And I did a project on fairness, actually. Uh, and that is something where I invited students and we tested whether, you know, when you have a queuing scenario and somebody jumps the queue, whether you want to punish that person. And, and okay, no surprise, people actually want to punish. Yes. The answer is a yes, uh, which, you know, for a lot of non-economists is, is often funny that <laughs> economists study these trivial questions often, but that's one of them. And yes. <laughs> People have moral preferences and moral preferences uh, not only for themselves but a for, for fair queuing procedures. So that's what we found found there. Yeah, it's interesting. That's one of those things that seems to be um, you, you, three roles have that. You know, the, absolutely. You, you're you're hardwired to want fairness. Absolutely. Know, to to be upset when when you see something that's unfair. Yes, it's interesting. And there is, you know, there's obviously a lively empirical literature on moral development, right? This idea that at different stages of our uh, personal development, we have different kinds of moral preferences. And that, that is something actually behavioral economists can say a lot about, and obviously in a dialogue with, with psychologists. Now, another way of conducting my research is uh, what I would call formal mathematical. You know, as an economist, you obviously um, formally trained also in mathematics and um, you know, applying stuff like game theory um, and game theoretical models to decision making uh, and try to see, you know, if, if we have like a nice formal model, often we can zoom into a certain causal mechanism that we want to describe. And that's something that is very powerful in economics and that I make use of like many other economists. And the last one I would say um, is a philosophical method, you know. Mm -hmm trying to read not only current papers, but papers in the history of thought, in philosophy of economics, and talk about concepts like rationality and welfare, and how did they change over time, right? And that's a very philosophical method to, um, to look at texts and try to interpret them and try to link them to you know, current topics. And uh, yeah, that's another way how I, I do my research. And that's quite frankly how, because you asked, Patty, how, how, how do I 
come to my ideas. And it's it's really so many ways, right? Mm -hmm. It can be a spontaneous idea while you walk in the park. It can be a conversation with a colleague. It can be a paper that you read. Um, or can be a book, you know. So there's a lot of sources. And I think that is, to me, the most fascinating aspect of being a researcher that you are first and foremost a human being in a world and you look around you and you say, wow, there's so many puzzling things that I want to understand and explain. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, there's not just one way. So how do you balance your research and your teaching? I, I know that um, that's one of the things that in a smaller arts college, you really have to find a, a, a good balance. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm so positively surprised about the openness of Pomona College when it comes to teaching, but also when it comes to research. I feel there are so many resources out here. Um, people support you, you know, and I would say we are privileged here. You know, we have wonderful students that want to learn a lot, that are demanding, you know, and you got to deliver in the classroom and in your office hours and you have projects with them. But they enrich your own thinking, right? So mm -hmm. there's not really a conflict. And I would say, you know, Pomona professors can can be lucky. You know, there's so many professors out there, uh, not at private liberal arts schools, but at, uh, you know, larger universities that have a higher teaching load and more admin and et cetera. So I feel this is a wonderful job and I, I'm not afraid to combine that. I, I feel it as a privilege and I love teaching. So mm -hmm. I feel it as a very mutually beneficial relationship between teaching and research here. Malta, you credit your wife Ratna as the reason you started your academic career in the US. Can you tell us about that story? Well, you know, she's actually, I would say the reason I, I became a professor in the US because I was just, you know, a humble tourist from Germany, being in New York, visiting some friends. And there was a party, you know, it was organized uh, around a noble cause, actually, for uh, children with uh, blood cancer. And this foundation, you invited people to this party and said, you know, cocktail for a good cause. When I said, that oh, sounds good. A friend of mine organized that in New York. And, you know, the party was okay. But... Um, <laughs> At some point, and I, I remember it vividly, you know, there was this beautiful woman in front of me, and I said, I want to get to know her. But I knew I only had a couple of days in New York, so I said, you know, just have a nice philosophical discussion about our hopes and dreams, <laughs> and then leave and go back. But, um, well, I fell in love with her uh, basically that evening, but I had to go back. So that was uh, a problem. Uh, so we, we met at a party. I went back to Germany, you know, continued studying in my PhD. But I said... I should write an email to a professor in, in New York. Why not? You know, I can be in New York, can do my research, and maybe have some time with the woman I just fell in love. And as it happens, there was a wonderful professor, and he's still there, Mario Rizzo. He is um, a professor at, at New York University. And I wrote him an email, and, you know, the stars aligned. He answered within 20 minutes. He said, let's have a coffee. I said, okay, I will be at NYU in an hour. Uh, we had a coffee, invited me to come for two months. The two months turned into eight months and then into a two-year postdoc. And I have to thank both Ratna, obviously, for bringing me to the U.S., but also Mario for enabling me to, you know, have this wonderful uh, now, you know, life with my wife in Santa Monica. Yeah, you're, you're the product of... Um the German educational system, and to some smaller degree, the the U.S. system, uh, pre-PhD, and you've you've taught in both. 
Um, can you give us a little bit of a bit of a comparison of the two systems? You know, there's so many differences. <laughs> um, if I would start off with the main difference, it is student debt on behalf of the students, right? Nobody in Germany has a significant amount of student debt. And what that means is that students really are free to move afterwards, right? It's mm -hmm. not that you have to feel you have to pay back your, your debt because you went to med school yeah. and you, you're basically stuck for the next 20 years and, mm -hmm. and, and work hard in and, and, and a noble job, but you're basically stuck, right? Mm -hmm. So that is a huge difference. Now, in the classroom, I would say the German system is, if you compare it to a place like Pomona, is a little bit more old school. Mm -hmm. So you have big final exams, but not much like going on during the semester. The students have a good time, right? <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. They do whatever, you know, in a classic European way. So it is not as school-oriented, you know, um, college life in, in Europe. And the third big difference, I would say, is that in Europe, it is really a European system. It's not that we only talk about Germany or France or England. I feel there's yeah. a lot of mobility in the academic system. So you would do your bachelor in Germany, but you go on uh, to study in London at the LSE and you do your PhD in Paris. So, And that is something that I find uh, interesting because you have automatically an international uh, dimension, right, mm -hmm. that... Yes, it happens in, in America too, um, especially with Mexico and the U.S. or Canada and the U.S., but it's often one-sided, that, that, um, that trade-off. And I feel that is something beautiful in Europe that um, I would always you know, um, recommend students also here to try and, and, and spend some time there because it is inherently international in Europe when you study. Mm -hmm. Talking about the kind of comparing and contrasting the the... German and American systems, but and since you've taught in both, can you tell us a little bit about the differences or similarities also that you've observed between German and American students and their respective outlooks in economics for themselves? That is a, a hot topic. So um, <laughs> I would say, you know, there is that stereotype against economic students that they only care about, you know, their own careers and they want to go off and you know, be in finance and whatever. And I never really found that convincing because I always thought e economic students are actually quite geeky and interested in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just finance. It's it's actually really, it could be the environment, could be sustainability, it could be the public sector, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I always thought e economic students are very colorful and there's a bunch of very different um, interests uh, when you talk about students. But on the other hand, if you try to contrast the typical... German slash European student to the American student, I would say there are not so many differences. The one difference is maybe here in the U.S. that more people want to go into finance. Mm. It's not by far, you know, the, the majority, but I think the financial sector in the U.S. is just more dominant and is something that a lot of our students just know. And it's, mm -hmm. it, it's either private consultancy or finance that is very very dominant. And it's something that in, in Europe is not as dominant because we also have already business schools at the very outset. So when you start mm -hmm. after, after you know, high school, you could already directly go to business school. That means if you study economics, you're not the finance person, right? That's the people in the business school. So you have a yeah. slightly different population when it comes to uh, studying economics. Now, when it comes to like student life, I would say 
there is a little bit more, I would say, experimentation on lifestyle choices in, in Europe because the pressure is not as high. Mm -hmm. I feel pressure here, sometimes on our students, is a little too high. Um, a lot of our students are, are very focused, and that's wonderful uh, when you talk about education and outcome in the classroom atmosphere. But there's also something about, you know, this old romantic ideal that you go out into the world, you wander around, and, you know, it's about experimentation also. Mm -hmm. And that is something that, you know, I would say in the U.S., um, our students are wonderful, but that element of experimentation, um, I, I would say, is, is different. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned in passing how you came to Pomona, but uh, it was like the five-second version. Uh, let, me, let me get you to elaborate <laughs> on that a little bit. The 47-second how, how did you find out about Pomona? <laughs> Why did you decide to come here? So the main reason I applied to the job here at Pomona was really the wonderful way a liberal arts education allows you to combine your passion for teaching, your passion for interdisciplinarity, right? For not just being an economist, but for being, you know, a PPE person, mm -hmm. being interested in philosophy, politics, and economics. To have that and to be seen as somebody who has a valuable contribution to the community of Pomona and to not be somebody who is stepping outside the traditional canon. And you would hear that in a lot of economics departments mm -hmm. around the mm -hmm. country. Uh, you know, that is not economics. And that is basically the most uh, difficult statement a economist can make. It's basically judging you, you're not doing science, right? And I never had the feeling during my interview or, or now with my colleagues that, that that came up as a problem. It's just a different atmosphere. So I, I wanted to be in a liberal arts environment and Pomona was just at the top of the list. I mean, this is... Uh, just such an outstanding place with wonderful colleagues and wonderful students. And, you know, sunny Southern California. <laughs> Not too bad. You mentioned that that um, conflict within the, uh, the discipline. Uh, do you think that's going to pass over time, or is that going to be a permanent sort of the, the, sort of the, the, the people who see it as a, as, a, as a hard science and the people who see it as a softer science? You know, I think it will always be a debate, but I also see a value in differentiation and, you know, people becoming more, more narrow and narrow. I think there is something of a value because you become better in your methods, for example, if you only study, you know, certain parts of the labor market with certain methods and you really focus on that. I think there's a value in that, but I think it also needs you know, a different type of scientist, of social scientist, and mm -hmm. that should be always allowed to have both types, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, I think because there's so much pressure within disciplines um, to have a cohesive idea of what our discipline is, there will always be pushback, mm -hmm. right? There will always be pushback against people who are thinking outside the box. But I feel, and I, I'm, I might be an Id idealist in this regard, I mean, the U.S. is such a huge country, right? There's so many pockets out there where we cannot just all do the same. And that's actually a wonderful aspect to be out here in the U.S. I feel just the sheer size um, allows for diversity and experimentation. And that's something that is true in the academic system, but it's also true on a social uh, level, right? And it's something that a lot of people, a lot of people in Europe, quite frankly, forget that there's an inherent beauty actually in the American society and, and the academic system also. What are some of the research projects that you're working on right now? 
So currently I have a, a, a number of projects. Um, I, I have been working on an economist called James Buchanan, who is a very controversial figure. He's considered to be, um, by some, a very conservative economist and an economist who basically, uh, I mean, he got the Nobel Prize uh, in 1986, and he's considered to be a free marketeer by many. But he was a very rich thinker, and he had a, an elaborate idea of how can we justify the state, actually, and, and how can we justify state action? How can we provide public goods? And he was somebody who was always you know, interested in bringing philosophy into economics. And I find him a controversial thinker who left us a lot of food for thought. And I, you know, I have a couple of projects on him. And mm -hmm. for example, his understanding of choice and rationality, that is quite different from the traditional way economists think. But also his understanding of paternalism, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge current debate on behavioral paternalism, this idea that you know, a lot of us, we are quite bad in making decisions. We have reasoning failure, you know, we are boundedly rational. And a lot of economists call for, you know, a paternalist stepping in. And, and the people who are very famous in that regard are Richard Taylor and, and Cass Sunstein, who wrote that book, Nudge. And the idea there is, how can we nudge people into, you know, better choices? And mm -hmm. there's a huge um, controversial debate out there. And James Buchanan, I think, has some interesting thoughts on that. So one of my papers is on Buchanan and paternalism. Um, but there, yeah, there, there are so many current research projects that I actually forgot <laughs> about <laughs> currently. But that is definitely one. Um, mm -hmm. And there's another one uh, that is related to that. There's um, a book called The Community of Advantage written by a British economist, Robert Sugden. And in this book, Sugden argues for basically the consumer should be left to herself or himself. And I think there, and he gives a long philosophical argument for that. And the argument is good, but he also says we should take psychology seriously when you talk about consumer welfare. And in one of my projects, actually with a student of mine here, Elias van Emmerich, we work out um, an argument against Sugden saying he doesn't really take psychology seriously. Um, he mm. takes philosophy seriously, but not psychology. So we're talking about um, how to include psychology into this framework. So you've described um, teaching and learning as a reciprocal process. What have you learned from your students? I have learned a lot. I mean, just being here now, barely over half a year, I learn every day from my students, not only about, you know, stuff that I teach, because, you know, I throw out an idea theory and they come up with a thought that I didn't have before. And they come up with a discussion topic that I didn't think about. So just on Monday, we were talking about paternalism, actually, in one of my seminars. And we started to talk about assisted suicide because students were so in interested in that. Is it something where we need somebody, you know, helping you? Is it a right that people should have? Is it something that state should kick in? And um, I found that a wonderful discussion. And I, I learned a lot from my students in that, in that discussion. But then also just about campus life. I mean, professors just miss out on so many <laughs> interesting things. And it's not, I mean, they should do whatever they want to do in the sense that, you know, they should have their, their privacy. But there's a lot of, like, just informal knowledge um, that only students have, right? We're talking about, for example, organizing an event for um, our students, but also for alumni. And if I do not talk to my students and listen to them, well, we miss out on, you know, what actually is interesting because uh, 
they have really, I mean, they are the future. I mean, they, they know what is going on. We are sort of in between, you know, trying to assist them. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I learn a lot from them. So on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Um, our thanks to Assistant Professor of Economics, Malta Dold. Malta, thank you. That was great. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.